Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. Hope you're having a nice Wednesday. Beautiful outside here in Toronto. It's beautiful outside over in Boston. No threats looming of a rain delay. No threats looming of a rain out. Minor threat looming of the Boston Red Sox just folding it up and calling it a season. The Toronto Blue Jays beat them quite handily again yesterday. Nine to three. Bats get hot again. Another big inning. An eight-run third. Jays have now won five of six. We're going to do a lot of breaking it down today. And I'm curious as to where the confidence level is among the listenership in a few things. Um, Overall, sure. But this is a team who at times this year, it's felt like plays up to good competition and then down to bad competition, which is funny because there's also been the criticism that they don't beat good teams enough, which has been statistically true of like everyone in the American league, except for the uh, Yankees and Astros where the Jays sit right now is 20 games above 500 against sub 500 teams. They have absolutely taken care of, of the easy parts of the schedule, they got to stretch ahead where if you were ever going to rebuild that cushion you had for a playoff spot, it's now these next couple weeks, the rest of this Boston series, you've got the angels and the Cubs ahead. You've got the pirates and the Rangers ahead with Baltimore sandwiched in between them. Stretch of 19 games with only four against teams above 500 I'm a believer that the Orioles are going to remain annoying. Some don't think they're going to keep up this pace and hang around the wildcard race too much longer. We'll talk to Dan Zimborski of Fangraphs about that a little later. I also want to talk to Dan about the new Major League Baseball schedule for next year. It came out today, and it's more balanced. You talk about the Jays making up ground against teams that aren't their divisional opponents. Well, you get a whole lot more of that next year. Only going to play each divisional opponent 13 times next year. Six to seven against each AL West and AL Central team, and then 46 games against the National League. So, let's see it. Let's see it take advantage of that those lighter parts of the schedule. If you missed last night, or if you just want to relive it, big, 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 big third inning. One out, runners on. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. grounds out. Then the Jays go double, walk, single, single, walk, single, walk, triple. Then Vlad grounds out again. If you listened to Jays Talk Plus yesterday, particularly our first segment with Chris Black and Joe Siddle, we went into exactly this. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has underperformed with runners in scoring position with runners in scoring position in two outs in high leverage spots. And that has declined more than it has his overall stats. Yesterday was a really interesting example where not only does he have two ground outs, bookending a huge eight run inning for the Jays. um, He also has a ground out in the fifth with two runners on and he has two bases, empty doubles. It's not as simple as that snapshot, But it was a pretty timely snapshot given our conversation yesterday. Also helps that during that big rally, 
Teoscar Hernandez and Lourdes Gurriel Jr., two guys who we highlighted yesterday as having improved their approaches at the plate, improved their ability to use all fields, and who have been two of the Jays' best hitters with runners in scoring position, had hits to center and right field, respectively, during that rally. So, good day all around. I mean, Vlad, you can't be too upset with uh, a day on which you have two doubles and go two for five. Um, But him continuing to struggle with runners in scoring position is worth keeping an eye on, especially since all three outs produced were ground outs uh, to the pole side. So, Jays as a team, six for 18 with runners in scoring position. That one, 333 average. Happy with that one. Couple of walks mixed in there as well. Alejandro Kirk, the only guy who didn't get a hit in the starting lineup, but he had a pair. <clears throat> he had a pair of walks. Ross Stripling was very good. You say Kikuchi, less so. Let's bring in our pal Caitlin McGrath of the Athletic to discuss it. Caitlin, how are you? I'm good. I'm just trying to walk through Fenway and find somewhat of a quiet spot. Well, uh, you could just wait until, like, the fifth inning of any Red Sox game lately, and that crowd gets pretty quiet. Yeah, that was noticeable yesterday. It was like you looked up in the first, and it was pretty, pretty good crowd, not, not sold out or anything. But then, like, by the middle innings, it was, like, really cleared out around here. So it's a tough, tough for Red Sox fans right now. It is a tough one. Uh, the Blue Jays have had a lot of of success at Fenway Park so far this year. Another 9-3 to victory yesterday. It seems to be the park that they like hitting in the most this year. Um, what's going on? What, what is your read on why the Jays have played the Sox so well or alternatively, why the Jays seem to keep catching the Red Sox when they're in the process of maybe just bowing out for the year? Yeah, I mean, there's probably a few things. I mean, the Jays put a lot of balls in play, and the Red Sox don't have great defense. And so I think maybe that can be a factor. We've seen that be a factor a little bit in some of these big wins that the Jays have had. I think the Red Sox pitching, uh, the Jays are coming in when their pitching is kind of a question mark. Obviously, Nathan Evaldi going on the IL, I think, yesterday. And so the Blue Jays missed him. And Kowski's not, um, you know, not a guy that uh, is exactly going to blow it by their hitters and so they've been maybe lucky in the how the schedule's broken and they've caught the Red Sox as you say it like when they're kind of slumping when their pitching isn't so great um you know yesterday we even saw Reese McGuire throw an inning uh, actually a quite an effective inning but seven um, pitches yeah exactly um three up three down as well so it's uh I don't know I mean the Blue Jays can maybe just like count themselves lucky because they're ca- they're always catching the Red Sox at a good time. And maybe on the flip side, they seem to be catching the Orioles when they're hot. Uh, they maybe would have liked their schedule to be more front-loaded with the Orioles when things weren't going so well with them. And uh, they're going to be tested, I think, in September against those teams. It's a good lesson that quality of opponent, while we try to capture it statistically with strength of schedule and things like that, it's not a static thing, right? Like teams aren't the same quality every single day over the course of an entire season. Um, I I think we're maybe going to see that from the Red Sox a little bit more down the stretch. Um, Nate Evaldi and Eric Hosmer hit the IL. Chris Sale and James Paxton already there. Uh, It's uh, Tanner Houck already there as well, Trevor Story. Um, Do you think we're getting close to the point where the Red Sox do the kind of typical, okay, it's late in the year, we're out of it, it's time to give the Winkowskis and Bayos and 
uh, Durans of the world more playing time? Like, they're seven games back now and haven't played well for a while. Do you think we're inching close to that? I would think so. I mean, I, I would think they're almost already there, just a combination of their record and also just the injuries, the necessity that it is for them to play some of those guys. Like, they're starting pitching. They don't have any, many other options, right? So, um, yeah, I think that – I don't know that the Red Sox would ever do, like, a full rebuild or anything like that. I don't know what they're going to do next year. I'm not, like, close enough to the team to know that kind of thing. But certainly I think this year you, you might as well just play your young guys, get them experience. I, I think it's safe to say they're probably not um, contending for a playoff spot. And you give those guys experience. And maybe if you have a hot run, then maybe it's possible. But there's no harm, really, in just seeing what – those guys can do and, and seeing how you can finish off the year. But I think at this point, you're even seeing some of those central teams potentially fall off. I mean, I guess the central divisions always at play. I think Cleveland's like three games up now, which doesn't feel like a huge lead, but maybe it is in the central. But uh, yeah, I think down in terms of the wild card, like I'm starting to think it's really just coming down to the three teams that are in it and maybe Baltimore. Yeah, it seems that way. Um, and, and if you're looking for signs that Boston is going that route, you can look at Winkowski and Bayo getting the starts over Hill and Waka in this series. But the big one just came down. We have the Red Sox lineup for today. If you thought Reese McGuire pitching in a blowout was something, Bobby Dahlbeck is starting at shortstop today. He has played four innings of shortstop in his major league career. He only played three innings of shortstop in the minors, never played it in college. Oh, boy. Bobby Dahlbeck at shortstop. Um, Caitlin, when you look at the way the Jays are catching the Red Sox, and you mentioned, hey, you haven't had the same fortune with with Baltimore or some other um, opponents catching them hot. How huge is it for the Jays to be able to take advantage of not just Boston, but they've got the Angels, the Cubs, the Pirates, and the Rangers ahead. This is kind of the last we'll say Fortnite of them having sub elite opponents. Um, like obviously you got to win any time, but to take part of, to take advantage of that soft part of the schedule. Um, how big is that? How big are these next two weeks in your mind? Very big. I think for two reasons, one, just to rack up those wins and, we can say the Blue Jays have been streaky this year. I think that that is something that we have said as observers. I think in the room they've acknowledged that they've been a streaky team. You heard Matt Chapman talk about it yesterday. And so they need to take advantage of this portion of the schedule. And they have done that throughout the year in terms of beating up teams that are weaker than them in terms of record at 500 or not. Uh, they have, I want to say they're like 32 and 12 or something like that against teams uh, below 500. So they've done a good job. They need to continue doing that. They need to sort of rack up wins right now when they can. And I would say the other reason why that's important is not just for the standings, not just for the win column, but if that, if, if a run here can give them some momentum or good vibes heading into what is a, what will be a tougher schedule mid-September where you have a lot of games against the Rays, a lot of games against the Orioles, uh, you've got a few more mixed in against the Red Sox and Yankees, but you really are circling those games against the Rays and, the, and Baltimore because that's essentially going to make or break your season. I don't know if it's going to make or break like getting into the postseason. I mean, potentially if, if the Orioles really do stick around, but it certainly feels like it's going to decide what playoff spot you're going to get um, in terms of 
the Rays, you're right there with them, and you're playing them a ton. So if you beat them more, then you're going to be ahead of them. Orioles the same way. And then you got to keep one eye on Seattle, who have a pretty easy schedule uh, to end the season. I know we just talked about sometimes that's it's not as simple as that, but they they have some – I think they're done with Houston. They've got a lot more games against the Angels, I think, maybe the A's as well. So they have a chance to beat up on lesser teams as well. So the Blue Jays really have to take advantage of their opportunity to do that. They do, and, you know, that's that's well laid out. And the one other thing I'd add is if you can build up wins now and enter that last, this is looking too far ahead when the race is this tight, but say you can pull ahead a little bit. And then that last week of the season, you can structure your rotation in a way that keeps an eye on the wild card series instead of, you know, having to use Manoa on the last day of the season and then uh, not having him available for the wild card series. So a lot of benefits to that. Um, Caitlin, in your estimation, so what is, what is the key to this? Because the Jays have done it well, but we've seen them have, two kind of semi-prolonged slumps. Now, what is the, what's the key in that clubhouse to keeping the foot on the gas over this two-week stretch? It feels like it's got to start with the starting pitching because I feel like when they were in that mini slump, sometimes it came down to some of the starting pitching didn't um, go as deep as they needed to, and that has a ripple effect. I think the bullpen has been really good lately for the most part, but I think it, that is reliant on them only having to carry maybe four, three or four innings per game as opposed to five or six. That's a huge difference. Um, and so it, it definitely will start with starting pitching, and that's sort of just like the old adage of baseball, I think. That's kind of understood. Certainly you want the offense clicking. I think that last night was encouraging the way that they can rack up wins in an inning and do a lot of damage and keep the line going. And that's going to be really important for them. It's interesting, like yesterday, they scored those eight runs in the uh, third inning, right? And then they added one more. But no, no, none were from home runs, which you right. think the Blue Jays are actually a team that probably should be hitting home runs to be successful. But if they can do it without, that's great, too. I mean, Fenway is kind of a weird ballpark, um, kind of built for, like, doubles um, and sort of weird long singles as well. So um, maybe that's just a, an effect of the park. But I think that... To me, like, it sounds obvious, but, like, it begins with the starting pitching, but it also relies on the offense coming up with those key hits, stringing those hits together. Um, and that's kind of the key to success for them. It's, it's kind of the key to success for anybody. I don't know. No, I, I, I dig it. And the Jays are only seventh in home runs in the league, which is obviously still good, but they're now tied for second with the Yankees in WRC plus, which tries to capture kind of overall offense uh, controlling for a number of factors. So yeah, I would say that relative to the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Astros who are right around them in those standings, they have been a little less home run reliant, which doesn't always feel like it's the case when the bats dry up. Uh, yesterday was a nice one to see. Caitlin, um, you mentioned that you mentioned Matt Chapman's comments yesterday after the game. I know you spoke to him post game. Do you get the sense that he's started to emerge as a leader in that clubhouse now that he has two thirds of a season there and the comfort levels improved? Because it does seem to me, at least anytime there's a moment in the infield, anytime you catch a, a moment in the dugout, um, Chapman's kind of always got his hand on someone's shoulder is always talking to someone. It, it feels a little from the outside, like he's become a part of the leadership dynamic. 
Yeah, I think so. I think that's a good read on the situation. You can kind of see that, too. It feels like he's like the pitching whisperer sometimes, too. Like, he likes to, uh, with certain guys, he tends to go to the mound sometimes. Um, like when he told but, Manoa, stop throwing balls, and then Manoa was, like, perfect the rest of the game? Yeah, it's great advice. There's the times he's done it with Kikuchi as well, maybe less successful um, with that <laughs> advice. But, um, but yeah, no, I, th- I think that there's probably a few – factors to it you have to learn the clubhouse he came in kind of mid spring training or maybe early spring training I guess it was but obviously a shortened spring training so you didn't have as much time to get to know everybody and you've got you're juggling a lot of things you're getting to know the sort of the essential staff members and all that kind of stuff and you're trying to get to know your teammates and um, so there, there was probably a lot happening in the early stages of the season for him uh, then things uh, at the plate weren't going as well as he wanted them to it, looking at the numbers but often it felt like it was just really bad luck like all the underlying numbers the metrics the hard hit balls all that stuff was really really good so it felt like maybe in the first half he was also having somewhat of a frustrating year so you're trying to work through that you're trying to work through your adjustments and I think when you're a player and you're new at a clubhouse and you're also like maybe not like totally pleased with how you're performing it's hard to also like handle the leadership role because there's just other things that you're focusing on so I think that he's coming to his own he's looking more like the Chapman that you know, he's maybe become at this point in his career. And I think that that has also helped him step up in terms of the leadership role because, you know, things are going well for him at the plate. Things are going well for him in the infield, which they always were. He's such an elite defender. And so, yeah, I think it comes easier to step into that leadership role when when you're sort of less worrying about your own numbers and, you're, you know, you don't want to be necessarily a guy telling everyone to play better if you're hitting below 200 or something like that. So I think it's a lot easier for him to fill that role and use that leadership experience that he has now that he's feeling more comfortable and he's looking more like the guy that the Blue Jays definitely thought that he could be. Caitlin, I don't want to look ahead past this stretch run to the playoffs here. However, I do have to look ahead to 2023 just a little bit. The new balance schedule comes out and we we're going to talk throughout the show about some of the dates we're most looking forward to. You know, what, what is the new Seattle that fans will drive down for? You can text us what you like about the new schedule or, or don't like to 590, 590. We'll get to those throughout the show, but Caitlin, a more balanced schedule while acknowledging that Boston and New York are very cool places to go over the course of the season, this has got to be a traveling beat writer's dream, right? Freshening up all these destinations. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, uh, I looked at the, the schedule and thought, whoa, an 11-day, 10-game road trip to start the year uh, in St. Louis. So, I mean, I guess that'll be the first time in, I'm in St. Louis, assuming that I'm still in this job. Uh, at that time, which I don't know, who knows? You never know in this industry, but uh, hopefully I'll be making my way to St. Louis for the first time. And uh, I I assume the Rogers Center renovations played a role into that. The Blue Jays probably made a request just to give them time, give themselves some time. I mean, we all know just in our own lives, like you have to prepare for things taking longer than you think in terms of renovations. If anyone's ever remodeled a home or done anything, I think that's um, sort of a given. So I would say that that was probably um, behind that. And so it's definitely an interesting schedule to start. I think that you, like anyone in the AL East, likes less games against the AL East because it's proving <laughs> to be probably the toughest division right now. There's not really even a, a weak team at this point. Um, I, I mean, guess Boston, but uh, I mean they're still capable of putting up a lot of runs. So that's gonna be uh, that's gonna be cool. But yeah, a lot of different places um, and a lot more te- different teams coming through Toronto, which is cool as well. 
Yeah, it's great. Um, really looking forward to it. For now, though, Caitlin, uh, you are in Boston once again. Thanks for taking the time out and uh, enjoy tonight's game the rest of your time in Boston. Thank you. Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic. Check out all her great work there, uh, theathletic.com slash MLB, or you can author tag for Caitlin McGrath. Uh, a lot of good stuff. Some good quotes from Matt Chapman in her post-game piece from last night. I mentioned we're going to hear some of your opinions on the new balance schedule or whatever. It's a mailbag day here at Jay's Talk Plus. So you can send your texts in to 590-590 on the schedule, on the Jay's current stretch of play, on Ross Stripling, whatever you want. You got questions? Let's hear it. You want my scouting report on Bobby Dahlbeck as a shortstop over the six innings in his career dating back to like 2014 that he's played there? Uh, I'll do my best at the break to find uh, footage of him from high A... What was it? High A Salem, the last time he played uh, shortstop. So uh, you can keep those coming to 590-590 or tweet at me at Blake Murphy ODC. We've got a few mailbag questions already that we're going to uh, fire up after the break. A few about the schedule. We got a little Alex Rios question. Always fun here. Um, keep them coming. 590-590. Blake Murphy ODC. Thank you to Caitlin McGrath for making the timeout. We're going to take a break when we come back. Your questions and comments in the JSTOP Plus mailbag on Sports at 590 The Fan. The best Blue Jays show out there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. This little band you might know called Alexis on Fire, a little mailbox arson. This is time for us to open up the mailbag. It's Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Um, Jay's win last night, 9-3. Bats get going again. Ross Stripling, excellent again. David Phelps saving the bullpen with six outs. Trevor Richards needed three pitches to uh, come in and close it out. You say Kikuchi. Oh, boy. Not great. Not great. Not great. Not great. Three walks, two outs. Couldn't get out of an inning. When he comes in, I'm thinking, oh, maybe he can go two here. Maybe he can eat some. Nope. Not at all. Not at all. With that, we have a question from Mike in Port Hope. Will they not send Kikuchi down to free up a spot? on the team when the rosters expand two bullpen starts. were not promising. He can't be on the bench if they don't trust him to pitch. Got to be someone ready to bring up great show. Shout out to your producers. Yes. Shout out to Jr. and Andrew and Derek's off this week, but Derek as well, Mike and Port hope. I, I think they've got to revisit this. There is a justification for having a guy in the bullpen who you're just trying to find favorable spots for. And letting him work through some stuff in general. Right now, though, you have two Kikuchi relief appearances. Neither of them particularly strong. Certainly not strong enough that you'd trust him in anything other than another blowout scenario. And you're in a stretch where you just had an off day. So at least right now, the bullpen is well rested. But here's the biggest reason that I would revisit 
sending Yusei Kikuchi down. There is not a lot of Major League ready starting pitching depth at AAA right now. Thomas Hatch has been a little better in the second half. Um, you know, you've got your Sean Andersons and Casey Lawrence's of the world, but Max Castillo is not there anymore. Mitch White's already in the rotation. You have right now a stretch of nine games and then an off day. And then you play seven games over six days because of a doubleheader. And you have another off day, but then you're playing another compressed chunk where you have 11 games in 10 days because of a doubleheader. So yes, you could manage it. You can manage with Kikuchi being there for right now for this week. Maybe that's what they're looking at and they're thinking, hey, another another off day and then another pitching spot when rosters expand September 1st. We can get through this part of the schedule basically burning a bullpen spot on Kikuchi. Maybe that's what they're thinking. But my thinking comes in in that as bad as he's been, Kikuchi's probably still your sixth starter when you hit those stretches of the schedule where you have double headers. And even with off days, I don't think you want to overextend guys. Um, you know, you've got that seven game and six day stretch in early September. Well, you can't even manage that without a sixth guy, unless you want someone to pitch on short rest, which you're just not doing at this point. And then that Tampa series where you have five games in four days against Tampa. And by the way, if Baltimore's not out of the race yet, they're here right after that. You're, you're going to need a six starter in there, or you're at least, at least going to need someone who can be a bulk guy on a bullpen day. And I don't know right now that there's anyone other than Yusei Kikuchi to do that. So how is that a justification for sending him down? Well, it's to keep him stretched out. You do have to worry about the minimum amount of time you can spend in the minors. Maybe the window has passed to option him down. You can always do an IL move to sort that stuff out. And if we're being honest, bullpens are fluid enough over two week spans that maybe this kind of resolves itself anyway. But yeah, right now I think Kikuchi is not a guy who should be pitching in major league relief innings uh, of any kind of leverage with, but he is also paradoxically uh, their sixth starter. So uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how you navigate those things, but there you go. Thomas Hatch, by the way, his ERA is down to 457 at AAA. Maybe that doesn't do it for you because it's still not a very good uh, overall mark, but he's had a much better season since uh, he went down to AAA than he had. Um, prior to come or prior to coming up for that spot start, I'm still not a big believer in him being a starter, but like at the major league level, but he's allowed three earned over his last three starts, uh, a couple unearned in there as well. But um, yeah, this is a guy who at one point his ERA was monstrous. It was 576 at one point this season. It was higher even earlier, but we're only looking at the kind of meteor parts of the season once we had a sample. And he's got that down to 457. So maybe he ends up being an option, if not Kikuchi. But yeah, this is going to be something to watch. And as Mike and Victoria says, Reese McGuire is a better reliever than Kikuchi. Uh, at least he, he got the message to pound the strike zone in a blowout. Pound the strike zone in a blowout. That's all you got to do. Someone who didn't sign there said, send a team of sports psychiatrists to figure out why he can't throw strikes. It's all in his head. Um, you can't have a guy who can only come in in blowouts in September. I agree with the last part. 
in terms of the psych stuff, I, I'm sure that if he's open to that, that's available to him. Like if you're a, if you're a professional sports team in 2022 and you don't have mental skills coaches available for your players, uh, you're probably behind. So I'd imagine that that's there. Right? And you see it on his face. Uh, someone tweeted at me yesterday and, and I forget their name. So I apologize, but um, as frustrating as it is from the fan side, it's a very lonely place for Yusei Kikuchi to be on the mound like that, already having been moved to the bullpen and completely unable to throw strikes. So it's tough. I, I think those things are there for him if he needs them, um, but it's hard for us to say from the outside. Lots of Kikuchi stuff in the mailbag right now. Maybe we'll circle back to some of it. Uh, I want to get to some of the schedule stuff because... It's a fun day. The 2023 schedule is out. It, baseball does the cool thing where they let us know super, super early. Uh, in the NBA, we only found out last week uh, when, you know, the Raptors will be opening in a couple weeks here. Baseball, way, way, way ahead of you. The Jays open in St. Louis on March 30th. They have their first 10 games on the road, as Caitlin McGrath suggested earlier, probably because the Jays nudged them, nudged Major League Baseball and was like, hey, we're doing some renos. We wouldn't mind starting the season on the road. So you won't see them for a little bit. It's a fun schedule. I mentioned earlier that this moves some of the imbalance in the schedule. I, I'm not saying removes, but you go from playing each AL East opponent 19 times to playing them 13 times. That's 24 fewer games against what is most years the best division in baseball and which could have five good teams next year. Play the AL West and the AL Central six or seven times each, and then you get 46 games against the NL. You'll play every team. It's a lot of fun. It's uh, probably as about as close to a balanced schedule as, as baseball is going to be able to get, short of if they add two teams and then um, have some sort of divisional realignment that better lets them balance it. Our pal Joe Cacharo from the score broke down the new outline of the schedule and compared it to some other sports. So um, baseball still higher than NHL and NBA in terms of how big, how high a percentage of your schedule you face your own division. NFL is a little higher in large part because of the short season, the shorter season. Um, and even with that higher share, you're still only playing divisional opponents six times in the NFL. So baseball, a little higher than the NHL and NBA, a little lower than the NFL. In terms of interleague play, uh, baseball still the lowest, but that's up to 28.5% of the schedule now. So it's, it's come closer to the NFL. And then um, it's actually past the NFL and NHL in terms of percentage of your games against other teams in your conference or league who are not in your division. So the NBA has the NBA and NHL have more balanced schedules. Um, it depends which part of the balance you care more about the NHL. Obviously you still play a lot of games in your own division, um, but it's a little more balanced across conferences and things like that. The NBA, you don't play your own division a ton. Maybe you'd say you play your conference, your non-division conference opponents a little too much, um, but they have, then uh, the balance between conferences um, pretty strong. Play everyone home and away in the other conference. So that's something to keep an eye on. There, there are going to be some trickle downs from this beyond just 
oh, there's an easier schedule for certain teams and a harder one for certain teams. There are going to be some externalities here, as you'd uh, expect. We have some questions about the schedule. First, we got Ricky and Thornhill asking, what is the NL Park you expect to become the greatest biannual pilgrimage for Blue Jays fans? So what Ricky's saying here is, we already know every time the Jays are in Seattle, it's a big deal. The Jays fans take over. See, it's not exclusive to Seattle. We saw it in Minnesota a little bit. Um, we've seen it in basketball where the Raptors go down to the Pistons arena and turn it into Raptors part two, even though the Raptors never beat the Pistons. Um, it's an interesting question, Ricky. My first guess is PNC Park in Pittsburgh. I'll tell you why. That is the third closest park to Rogers Center in terms of driving distance, according to uh, some destination-to-destination -destination matrix from Third Landing Baseball. I could verify that on Google Maps, too, or something, but I'm not going to do 30 different or 29 different uh, distance searches. I will trust that they have uh, that accurate. So Comerica and Detroit and Progressive in Cleveland are the two closest. Uh, PNC Park in Pittsburgh, third closest, not much different than Cleveland. I've done the drive. It's completely manageable. It's a beautiful ballpark. It is very much aimed at families and a kid-friendly atmosphere. You'll see next week, actually, the Jays are there. Not only will you get a look at it, but you'll also see there's a 6.30 Friday start, in part because they're targeting those families. Um, I don't have kids. I went there when I was in my mid-20s. I've been to Pittsburgh a couple times uh, for different sporting stuff. It's awesome. It's a really great park. It has a beautiful skyline. It's family friendly. Uh, your only concern with picking PNC here would probably be that it doesn't have a monster capacity. So maybe that's a tough one. My backup guess would be Nationals Park, which isn't that nice a park, but it's the um, it's the seventh closest. It's the third closest National League park. And you also have to pick one here like like yeah Wrigley Field is one of the closer ones I don't know that you're nudging Cubs fans out of there I don't know if you're taking weekday day games I, I think PNC is the safest bet here um Ryan Altapia Stan asks what series against an NL team are you most excited for this is not a answering for everyone thing this is an answering for me thing the Toronto Blue Jays at the Los Angeles Dodgers July 24th 25th 26th Dodger Stadium is one of just seven I haven't been to. I am going, I'll tell you right now, if my boss is listening, I am going to find some way to weasel a work trip down there. You don't need to be on the road to do this radio show. For that one, I need to be. I haven't had the chance to go to Dodger Stadium still. One of the very few. So that's that's the big one for me. If you're a baseball historian fan, if you are... Um, I don't know, a fan of good baseball because the Dodgers are very good. Um, I'm also a little curious about the Jays will start September in Colorado. It's always a little cool to see how your team's bats will play in Coors Field. Uh, I am, Denver's a cool place. I, I'm less pushing to go to that one, uh, although it's another park that I haven't been to. Those are probably the two that stand out the most to me. Let's keep the mailbag going. Um, this NYP, oh, this Andy P maybe either way, Andy P or and YP 
thank you. He's listening from the UK. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Um, Taronovan Mitchell. Come on, man. You can't, you can't give me that name. Um, but I'll answer your question anyway. Um, only because you, your pin tweet is a Shea Gilgis Alexander in a Raptors Jersey Photoshop. Uh, are we scaling back on Vlad's ceiling after this season? Reasonable question, but the way you phrased it, I would say no. And the reason you can't scale back on Vlad's ceiling is because we saw it last year. He was second in MVP voting. That just happened. Maybe that's not the baseline you want to continue forward with, but that we just saw the ceiling. We're a year removed. There are some things he has to work on, some approach changes, some, um, you know, he's not a finished product. He's 23 years old. But no, the ceiling's not getting lowered because we saw the ceiling last year. And if you looked at second in MVP voting and 48 home runs, 111 RBI, 123 runs, uh, a 300, 400, 600 slash line, and you were like, no, do more, that might have been a, a you thing. Like, certainly you could have hoped that his first half of last season was able to be repeated over a whole season. But I still think, you know, a, a six-win version of Vlad is last year. And I don't know. If he were uh, if he were hitting better this year, he'd well, – obviously, if he were hitting better this year, he'd be on a better pace. But uh, my point was going to be that he has improved as a defender this year on top of that. Uh, so you could maybe push even higher. Again, Vlad with two doubles yesterday, but three opportunities with runners in scoring position and three ground outs. If you missed our discussion with Chris Black and Joe Siddle about it yesterday, um, it was one of my favorite of those segments on the year where we went into um, not just how different opponents are attacking Vladimir Guerrero Jr. in those situations um, and what Vlad's doing with them, but also, you know, from Joe Siddle's standpoint, what he's seeing from Vlad at the dish, why sitting on certain pitches in those situations, hoping to drive one, maybe causes you some errors in terms of swing and miss or rolling over a pulled ground ball. Go check that out. We also talked about Lourdes Gurriel Jr. and Teoscar Hernandez uh, being good in those situations, and you saw them come up big yesterday. Uh, one follow-up from Chris Black, by the way, who you can follow at Down to Black. He texted me this earlier. We talk about chase rate, which is the percentage of pitches outside the zone that a team swings at. Over the first 40 games this year, the Blue Jays were 22nd in the league in chase percentage. So that means they swung the eighth most frequently at pitches out of the zone. They were 16th in weighted runs created plus, which again, puts tries to put everyone on the same scale, adjusts for a number of factors. So you're 22nd in chase, 16th in WRC plus. Over the last 81 games, they've cut that chase rate down and are sixth in avoiding outside the zone swings Guess what place they are in WRC plus first over the last 81 games. It's not as simple as don't swing at bad pitches and your offense will be elite, but it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt at all. By the way, uh, a note from producer JR, another series to maybe look forward to July 18th, 20th next year, Fernando Tatis jr. Coming off that suspension. We'll see. That could be a buzzy a buzzy series or who knows? Maybe they go out and get shortstop reinforcements after, uh, um, after Bobby Dahlbeck uh, looks amazing at shortstop today. A couple more questions. Uh, so again, Tatis potentially coming to Toronto uh, July 18th to 20th 
after his 80-game suspension. So another one to look forward to there. A couple more questions in the text line. This one comes from Zoobs in the region. Doesn't say, you know how tweets have the little like sent from my iPhone or your email does? Does not say sent from a roundabout, but considering he's in the region, it probably was. He asks, confidence index ranking on unlikely internal bullpen saviors down the stretch. Zach Pop, Nate Pearson, Julian Merriweather, Yosfer Zulueta, Yusei Kikuchi, Matt Gage, MDK all day. I'm going to bite. I'm going to do the dumb thing. I'm going to say Julian Merriweather. Now, Julian Merriweather left the game on Sunday, and we don't have an update on that, what exactly happened there. He has been excellent on an extended rehab assignment in AAA. The velo's there. He has a 46% strikeout rate over eight innings, missing a lot of bats. You know the deal with Merriweather. He has major league gas. Historically, his problem has been walking too many guys. This year, he didn't really run into that. Uh, He was just getting hit very, very hard when he was up. He's a guy who's increased his ground ball rate a lot too. And now you're looking... And yeah, it's smallish samples all chopped up, but pretty consistently high 40s to low 50s ground ball rate, uh, pretty high strikeout rate. He's got the velo. I'm going to bite one more time. And I'm not saying that Julie Merriweather is in high leverage innings during the playoffs. I'm just saying to Zoobs' question about an internal candidate to make a bullpen impact down the stretch. I like him better than Nate Pearson, who is still only doing bullpen sessions, than Zulueta, who's on the IL and AA, than Kikuchi, who, who knows? Uh, Matt Gage, I like. I think he's done phenomenal at AAA. He's looked good when he's come up, even if he doesn't miss a ton of bats. Um, he, something tells me there, though, that the team's not as high on him as... I have been, or as the results say, because there've been a couple opportunities where it would have made sense to bring him on or keep him up. And he's hasn't gotten the nod. So that's at least a little curious to me. One of those names is going to come back up at at the latest September 1st. Um, Some of it might depend on the 60 day IL and 40 man crunch. Zach pops probably the next man up. If someone were to hit the IL and certainly didn't do anything to lose his spot. He just happened to have options. I'm going Merriweather. I'm curious uh, if there are other takes on that one. Uh, Jay's Retro asks, uh, is Brian Bayo better or worse than a typical NXT name? I'm going to say this. It's a little better because while the Jays were in rain delay yesterday, I turned on Sports at 360, as I do, and I was watching NXT. Again, just in case you forget, Sportsnet, the home for all your WWE content, Raw on Mondays, NXT on Tuesdays, SmackDown on Fridays, pay-per-views on and the network on Sportsnet now. But I would have said Brian Bayo is, is down there in forms of NXT names, but there was the debut of a guy named Javier Bernal, and he referred to himself like seven times as Big Body Javi, and he's not that big, and I can't imagine, uh, I think Brian Bayo would have a better time in NXT uh, working that name and coming up with a gimmick around it than someone average size named Big Body Javi who has to say his name over and over again. So great question, Jay's Retro. 
this is the time of year for very NXT names coming up to the major leagues uh, to make spot starts and things like that. Uh, question from our pal Samson Folk. Which era of baseball would Alex Rios have thrived in the most? And Samson asked this because he knows that Rios was my first like prospect love. Like first guy I was checking the minor league box scores on, looking at projections and things like that, thought he was going to be a real dude. And he was for a little bit. He had a couple of really good seasons. He had a four and a half win season, a five and a half win season, a six win season. Then he kind of became a disaster. Then he had another three win season, disaster, five win season, disaster. I don't know that there's any era someone that inconsistent would have thrived in. I will say probably his biggest attribute that got not underutilized, but, and part of this is, I guess, if you have a 265 OBP, you're just not on base enough to steal bases. He's a pretty effective base stealer. And I don't know that he always had the green light. And I think maybe people slept on the speed because he was 6'5". He, he looks like a big guy. Um, so maybe an era where there's a little more emphasis on the running game. And yeah, I, I, I also think like, I think back sometimes to uh, Jesse Barfield's like ridiculous outfield assist numbers in right field and wonder if like maybe a guy like that has a slightly better time further back when there's less like stats and video on him um, for throwing guys out. Not that Rios had like a cannon of an arm, but he was uh, he was pretty solid out there in right and maybe a little less so when they they gave him the whole uh, the whole nod in center. Uh, so I don't know. I want to say like late 80s, early 90s, maybe the uh, the 20 home run, 30 double, 30 steal guy always had a place uh, in baseball, but the sub 300 OBP guy, unfortunately went out of vogue. Uh, so thanks for that question, Samson. Sorry. I don't have a, a deeper answer. A couple more before we take a break and talk to our pal, Dan Zaborski of fan graphs, AJ and Brampton asks, would I give Russ stripling the qualifying offer? So for anyone who doesn't know, uh, Russ stripling will be a free agent at the end of this season. And one thing the Blue Jays can do to insulate themselves against that is give him a qualifying offer. Now, what that is, is it's a one-year deal worth the average salary of the 125 highest paid players in the league. So about 19 million at last estimation. One year, 19 million. Now, Ross Stripley could just sign that. He could be like, look, I have not had a career where I made a ton of money. I would like this one-year payday, and I'm betting on myself continuing this even further. And I'm going to re-enter the free agent market in a year, pocket this $19 million. Then you're stuck with $19 million for another starting pitcher when you have Hyunjin Ryu's $20 million on the IL, probably for the whole year. A questionable but still room for optimism Jose Barrios, 20 million on the books. And then uh, what'll be 10 or 12 next year, 10 next year for Yusei Kikuchi on the books as well. Bit of a risk, but if Stripling rejects the qualifying offer and hits free agency, uh, you receive a compensation round pick. The Jays got those for Marcus Semien and Robbie Ray turned into two guys who are already on their top 15 prospects list. Uh, according to MLB pipelines, latest update, K Dowdy and, and Tucker Tolman. So uh, not a bad return there. I think Stripling 
would sign it, which is fine. He's in a tough spot, though, because he's about to be 33, and this might be his only offseason coming off a career year to really sign a, a long-term a long-term deal at eight-figure salary. I have a hard time figuring what the market's going to be for Stripling. Like, I think if you could get him for the Kikuchi deal right now, you extend him, no question. But he might have suitors who are more willing to let him pitch a third time through the order and are willing to pay for that. They might... There might be suitors who, um, you know, want to tell them, hey, no longer are you a swingman. You're locked in. We believe in you. And we're going to give you either three or four years, even though you're 33, or we're going to give you two years, but up that annual salary um, because we think you're going to keep this up for at least two more years. He's a very tough guy to figure out. Um, Not a lot of guys who are about to turn 33 having career years enter the free agent market. So um, hard to find some precedent there. That's a really interesting question, AJ. We'll keep an eye on that one. Uh, and then Paul and Kingston asks, if there were there, if there were three game playoff tomorrow, I start Gosman, Manoa and Stripling. Do you agree? I think they would probably still go Barrios. Now, some of this is the, the actual answer is some of this is going to depend on where you're at in the rotation juggling by the time that wild card series uh, comes around, but the benefit of stripling is stability. Even if he's not elite that day, you could be pretty sure you're getting four innings out of him and have your bullpen ready to go. Now, the kind of galaxy brain or next layer thinking to this would be, well, if you start Barrios, stripling has a lot of experience coming in as a long man out of the pen. And if Barrios struggles or you don't want to trust Barrios a third time through, it's easier to bring Stripling in on top of that than it is to bring Barrios in on top of Stripling. So I'd probably slightly lean Barrios for the flexibility and structuring your entire nine innings element. Um, We're also going to get into a little later in the show um, some remaining reason for optimism around Jose Barrios, including some mechanical changes he made last start and uh, some underlying trends in the numbers. We're going to take a break. Before we do the Jose Brios talk, though, we'll talk to our pal Dan Zimborski of Fangraphs. He is the projections guy. He does zips. He's the guy helping us out with playoff odds and things like that. Want his take on this race, for sure. Also want his take, though, on how the new Major League Baseball schedule will affect a team like the Blue Jays. Dan Zimborski, next on Jays Talk Plus on Sports F590, The Fan. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis and Stephen Brunt. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Cake Murphy, as it were. If you're listening on the podcast, you will not get that reference. But check out the Spotify playlist, Jay's Talk Plus, to hear all the songs we play on the show and my nonsensical five-second thought on them as we come at a break. Uh, And if you're not listening on the podcast, subscribe to Blue Jay's Talk wherever you get your podcasts. Dan Zaborski of Fangraphs joins us now because 
with the new 2023 MLB schedule, we find out that the Blue Jays are headed to Cincinnati in August. Now, we could look at that as a cool Joey Votto against the Jays game. We could look at that as a cool Joey Votto returns to Cincinnati as a member of the Jays game. But the most important thing here is Cincinnati's drivable from Toronto. Dan, we got to get the ins and outs of, we have to revisit the ins and outs of this Cincinnati chili situation for the fans who are going to make that trek. What do you got for us, man? What's the, uh, what's the PSA? What's the scouting report? Let's just say I'd rather listen to cake than eat Cincinnati chili. Uh, hmm. Cincinnati chili, uh, for those who haven't had it, is uh, this chili with has chocolate in it. Not like a bitter Mexican chocolate, but kind of a sweet chocolate. It tastes a little like pumpkin pie filling because that's kind of what you want your spaghetti to taste like. I mean, your chili to taste like. And then they serve it over spaghetti for some unknown reason. Yeah, you can get it over these terrible hot dogs that they call conies that look like nothing I've ever had in New York, uh, but they really like it over spaghetti for some reason, and I don't know why. It's it's troubling. It is troubling, and we've talked to you about it before, so I don't want to belabor the point, but as we look around <laughs> at, you know, baseball fans are going to have more occasion to visit different stadiums uh, to follow their favorite team now. That's one of the impacts uh, of the new schedule. What is, what's your initial take? I obviously you haven't looked at all 162 games for all 30 teams. I don't think, um, but your initial take on the, the new schedule now that we see what a more balanced approach looks like. I, I think it makes a lot of sense uh, simply because in a league where you have so many wild cards, it doesn't make sense to have heavily unbalanced schedules. Uh, when you have teams in the AL Central competing for a wild card against teams from the AL East, uh, when they play a lot more games against you know, the Royals and the Tigers, while teams in the AL East get a healthy helping of a lot of good teams, you, there's a fundamental lack of fairness involved. Uh, I think that, generally speaking, if you're going to have a lot of wild cards and have wild cards have such a good chance of, of upsetting the division winners, you need to have a schedule that's fairly balanced. I'd make it even more balanced than it than it is simply because of the presence of the wild card. Yeah, it, it makes sense to do that. Um, I, you know, I don't know the feasibility uh, of if they extended it further, and I'm sure there's a part of them that wants to maintain the divisional rivalries. But hey, that's what the playoffs are for too. No, nobody ever got a a real rivalry by just playing a lot in the regular season uh, and being annoyed with the other team's fan base by the end. Um, so this. This takes baseball closer to the NFL in terms of divisional parity, like divisional um, priority, rather, in terms of how often you play your own division. Still the lowest of the big four sports in cross-conference play. Um, when you look at the reasoning going into this, it, you you laid out the case of having multiple wild cards, you need to have a more balanced schedule. And that's certainly A1 reason to do this. I would say A2, if you're a fan of a team in the AL East, is that we expect baseball divisions and team success to be, for the most part, cyclical. But the AL East has been pretty sticky as the best and, at worst, second-best division in baseball for a long time. Um, how much do you think this stands to benefits teams like the five teams of the AL East ahead of a year where all five of those teams could expect to be good next year? 
I think you do give them that, that wild card benefit. And we've had more balanced schedules before. Obviously, we did not have interleague play in the 80s. But while I was growing up in the 80s, the AL did, uh, if I recall correctly, 13 games against your division and 12 games against the, uh, the uh, other divisions. And in the NL, I believe it was 18 and 12. Uh, I might be pulling that number out of my hat, and it might be completely made up, but that's what I seem to recall, and the world didn't end. Yeah, it didn't. We're still here, uh, 100 years later in, in baseball history. So um, I think it will be good for, for that, um, and certainly Jays fans have spent enough years hoping for another wild card spot or a most, more balanced schedule. Um, Dan, when you think through what this is going to look like, do are there any like kind of – for lack of a better term, externalities that that stand out to you or, or that crop up where, hey, we did this to fix this, this, and this, but maybe it creates a little bit of an issue here. I, I think you do get an issue of travel time. You yeah. are going to have kind of longer trips than you would otherwise. That means teams on the East Coast will have more trips to the West Coast. But again, I mean, right over the 1980s, they, they, they did that before. The world did it end. Uh, planes have not slowed down as far as I know. I'm not an aviation expert, but I, I think that the possible negative consequences are fairly small. Uh, but, you know, we sometimes have nasty surprises with some of these some things in baseball. Yeah, we, we sure do. And, uh, you know, it'll be funny. The, the AL East will underperform next year and we'll all be like here at Toronto. <laughs> oh, no, we should have had more games against the AL East. The, the Red Sox are 19 easy wins. Um, so speaking of schedule, you wrote the other day about the compressed schedule that we're facing for the playoffs. And that includes a one, two, three, no day off, no travel wild card round and a championship round that could include five consecutive game days. Um, the Jays can't look ahead to that championship round yet. They can only look at the wild card round, but bigger picture. Um, what are you seeing when you look at how a one, two day off three, four, five, six, seven series uh, could play out differently than series we've seen from the past with more rest? I think it'll make more of a difference in kind of very, like like microanalysis and very in a few very specific situations based on a certain injury or a certain player or a certain game in which the bullpens had to go, you know, eight innings or something. I think those are the ones that we're not going to really know until we get there. I think when you're talking about in the aggregate, it's probably a pretty small issue. Uh, I tried to model it uh, last week and looking at, what the difference between teams is having to use, you know, more fourth starters, strike their bullpen a little longer, and just the two extra games, the differences between the teams, they just weren't large enough to make just a huge difference when you're looking at it two months from now. But when we actually get there and say we're in a playoff and and so and so tweaks his leg and is going to miss a start. Then all of a sudden that missing off day can can be huge. We just don't won't know where. It, which games those will be until we actually get there. Right. Um, so we, we've talked, we touched on a little bit that, I mean, we, we've expected the wild card series would only take place over three days. We've expected for a while now because of the Yankees gap at the top of the AL East, that if the Toronto Blue Jays make the playoffs, it's going to require a three game series uh, in the first round to get through when you, whether in the data or just kind of hypothesizing about this, 
any three-game series in baseball is going to be something close to 50-50. It's just too short a sample. But what are some traits at the team level you would be looking for to say, hey, that team has a, a little bit better of a shot of taking a three-game series than a team in a vacuum? Well, generally speaking, when you get into a very short series, uh, the shorter the series, the more important the kind of the strength at the top of your rotation is. Uh, your lineup doesn't generally vary that much day to day, especially when you're talking your your nine preferred players, uh, of course, or matchups. But generally, the lineup is more stable than who the starting picture is. And when you're starting a game, you know the difference between Kevin Gossman pitching or uh, or or you said Kikuchi pitching is pretty pretty big, and the biggest difference between games. Uh, so, in a three game series, the team that has the stronger top three. Even if overall they have a weaker rotation, even if their fourth and fifth starters are, are, are very weak, that team will have an advantage in a three-game series. Yeah, and then I, I would guess then there's I, – I don't know how you would model this really, but uh, a pretty heavy emphasis on this next stretch of games for all of these teams because if you can build a cushion as the number one wildcard team, you could more um, deliberately set up your wildcard rotation, right? Yeah. If you, if you have a playoff spot locked off, locked up before the, before say a week before the end of the season, you can start looking for, because we know what dates these games are going to be played on. There are no, there's no going to be a change in schedule except for weather, because now when teams are tied, they're all tiebreakers. We don't have any game 163s or game 164s, which makes me sad, but it does make the planning a little easier. Uh, I, I think that given the difference between team quality, you really want to get your top starters in the shorter the series. So that three-game series is the most important to set up. So you mentioned while you were talking about the gap in starting pitcher between, you know, hey, what does it look like if you can set it up versus what, is he, what does it look like if you're in triage mode and you got to fight to the finish just to get there? And you mentioned Yusei Kikuchi. I saw you tease this a little bit in your latest fan graphs chat, Dan. Is Zips finally ready to give up on Yusei Kikuchi? Not give up, but it's definitely quite worried. Uh, you look at his peripheral data, and last year, uh, some of his plate discipline data didn't really support the high walk rate. But this year, it does. That, of course, is pretty bad news. Uh, he's he's gotten legitimately worse since last year from a command standpoint. And maybe a stint in the bullpen will kind of clear that up. It wouldn't be the first picture uh, for for that to happen. But right now, you can't really trust him in any kind of of high leverage inning and it's kind of a reset and see where they stand next year. I think you cannot even trust him in a low leverage spot, Dan. He, uh, the early returns one and two thirds innings out of the bullpen, uh, four walks. So not the, uh, not the greatest of starts in that regard. Um, so let's take a look at where the playoff races stand right now, based on fan graphs, playoff odds. And again, you always have to take this stuff with grains of salt and, and um, you know, one of the things we have to keep in mind is that, you know, our brains don't do the best job with probabilities um, and contextualizing those. So when you hear 5% or 90%, that can tend to feel like 0% or 100%. Uh, but having said all that, right now, the Jays are half a game back of the Tampa Bay Rays, but they have about a 3.6 percentage point 
better chance of winning the division based on that model. Um, is this just a bet on the larger player level sample of the Jays being a bit better of a team than the Rays? Is there something in the schedule? What leads to that gap for two teams that are effectively tied? Well, both the Fangrass probabilities with Hughes, Zips, and Steamer, and my probabilities with Hughes, Zips, and they use them in a different manner, both see the Blue Jays as clearly a better team than the Rays. Uh, one of the things I like to remind people of is if you go back to the start of June, when the Yankees you know, had a 700 winning percentage, the Fangrass rest of season's roster strength for the Yankees actually still had them slightly behind the Blue Jays in expected winning percentage. Obviously, it didn't see them playing below 500 as they've been, but if you, if you go back to, to June 1st, the Fangrass uh, playoff probability saw the Blue Jays going forward as the 576 team and the Yankees as a 551 team. Uh, so generally speaking, the projections have liked the Blue Jays quite a bit and certainly better than the Rays. Uh, Fairgrass has tended to have the Rays like a little above uh, 500. Zips does it a little differently and tries uses a different manner to calculate depth and has them more in the 540 range. But either method has the Blue Jays as superior. Now, it could be that we're consistently overrating someone like Kevin Gosman or, or Alec Manoa. I'm, I'm sure no one listening to this hopes that's the case. But generally speaking, these projections really, really like the Jays and have for the entire season. There's also a, a strength of schedule component. The Jays have, uh, based on just opponent record, the rest of the way, a 485 strength of schedule remaining win percentage. Um, now, team quality isn't static. You can catch teams at a good time, catch teams at a bad time. Um, but when you look at this, so the the Jays are just started a 19-game stretch, Dan. Uh, started last night with Boston, where they'll go um, Boston, the Angels, the Cubs, the Pirates, the Orioles, and the Rangers. 19 games with only four against teams above 500, and all those are against the Orioles. Um, if, if the Jays are going to lock up the top, wild card spot how important is this um this next kind of 19 game stretch like like this late in the game how incumbent is it for them to make hay while the sun's shining so to speak it's very important uh if you look at like a projection like a golf game like being above par the projections would expect the blue jays to win you know, 60% of the time against 450 teams and 50% of the time against equal teams. So what that means is that every loss against one of those teams kind of hits you more in the win column than a loss against the Yankees. Uh, it would, for every win, it would, it would just be another little sliver cut off. So these are important. And I think this is also the best opportunity to whittle away even more of, of the Yankees lead. Uh, the Blue Jays had a, a, uh, a stretch two months ago before the Yankees really started struggling in which they had an opportunity against weak teams to, to really close that gap. Uh, I think they went six and three, six and four What the Yankees think just as well. So they did it, but this is probably the last best opportunity, except of course, any head to head games uh, to, to close that gap because it's not an impossibility. It looked, like a real long shot a month ago, and it's still kind of unlikely, but getting the division is still a pretty big deal. You skip the long card round, and, you know, everybody wants to do that because it's obviously superior. 
yeah, it's it's obviously yeah, it's superior. And you know, if you can uh, theoretically, then you can you know line up your rotation better, get everyone a George Springer, a couple extra days of rest. Um, eight games, eight and a half games, not impossible at this point. Still five uh, percent firmly in. You're saying there's a chance range um, when you look at the rest of the wild card race. So. Uh, I'm going to read out the the wild card odds, uh, and I have the Fangraphs ones in front of me. So sorry not for for not having uh, just yours, but these are the Fangraphs ones that account for uh, they use Zips and Steamer. The Jays are at 89% to win the wild card, 94.5% to make the playoffs. Mariners at 90.6 to win the wild card, and basically the same thing for the division because they're 11 and a half games back. Uh, the Rays then at 77.7 to get a wild card, 79 to win the division. And then you have this AL Central bundle where obviously one of those teams is going to win the division, but they only have a combined wild card chance of 26.2%. Um, and then, you know, there's the small percentages for the Yankees, the Orioles, and the Red Sox. How large would that gap have to be that you see in games behind between the last wildcard team and the, and the first team out um, to feel like this is, you know, what we're going to be like, it feels very strongly is what I'm trying to get at that. The Jays, Rays and Mariners are going to be the wildcard teams, even though probabilistically that's not near a certainty yet. Do, do you feel similarly when you kind of watch these teams day to day and follow the league day to day? I think it's about right. I would actually probably put the AL Central uh, stragglers a little bit lower than that. I think that all three of the teams have depth problems that aren't quite that 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 the Blue Jays, Rays, and Mariners generally have better depth at most positions than the AL Central teams. Uh, the Twins have improved, but you look at, you go back to the start of the season; the rotation was very thin. They've 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 bolstered that, but I think that those teams are more susceptible to a nasty surprise than, than the other three teams, Jays, Rays, uh, uh, Mariners. Uh, now, of course, the Orioles are still, you know, technically in it. Uh, there are only a few games. I, 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 I question that pitching stat. Well, the, the rotation, the, the bullpen is very good, but I still don't think the Orioles are going to stick much longer. I don't think the Red Sox are either. They're already below 500 and they, they feel like they're limping away. Uh, so I'm, Pretty sure it's Blue Jays, Rays, Mariners, but I'd probably put the AL Central teams snagging a wild card probably more at like 15 than than 26 percent. Just to guesstimate it off the top of my head. <laughs> That's fair. Um, I, I last one on the standings here. Right now, the projected cutoff, like last team in, would win 87 games. Now there are obviously effects of adding the wild card spots in terms of maybe more teams competing longer, uh, maybe not as many sellers. Um, and, and then the effect that that has the, the Astros and Yankees, well, Yankees previously um, having kind of outlier win totals to start the year, that 87 win cutoff would have been the lowest since 2017. If this playoff format were in place historically um, significantly lower than last year's 91 and 2019's 93. Are you a little surprised that it's dropped that far? Or is this something you expected with the extra playoff spots? I, I'm not that surprised simply because I don't think there are as many horrible teams in the AL as there sometimes are. Yeah. The, uh, the I mean, the Orioles are much improved, so they're taking wins away from everyone. Uh, the Tigers and the Royals aren't good, but they're, 
they they usually aren't good. Let's be honest. <laughs> uh, and there's a lot of teams in the AL West are just kind of struggling, like a little below 500. You have the Rangers, the Angels. Uh, there's a lot of mediocrity, and that kind of having a lot of mediocre teams instead of just downright lousy teams kind of lowers the the threshold for getting into the playoffs. And obviously we had that extra wild card spot, which is also handy. Uh, so I, I don't think it's a huge change. Uh, I don't have the average what Zips has the, the winner actually getting. Uh, it's a little tricky because as I tell people at the start of the season, uh, Zips projected the top four AL East teams on average to win 87 games. Right. But that didn't mean that 87 games would make the playoffs or, I mean, win the division. It just meant that on average, most of those teams don't win the division. Uh, the average division winner ended up having, I think, 97 wins when you simulated it out. So it can be a little complex, but some of it is the, uh, the, the, the product of the new wildcard system. And I'm just happy that that it doesn't look like we're going to have a losing team make a wild card because that <laughs> the idea of expanding playoffs and having that happen just really bothers me. Yeah. I don't think we're anywhere near that. The only way to have that happen would be to give the AL central to, to playoff berths automatically. Then maybe we'd, uh, we'd run into that. Uh, Dan Zaborski of Fangraphs, Keep up all the great work, man. Uh, the, the playoff odds are, we're into the daily check part of the season. So uh, keep up all the great work. Always fun. Thanks for having me on. Dan Zimborski of Fangraphs. Uh, you can check out his stuff both in the uh, playoff odds tab of uh, the standings page on Fangraphs. Fangraphs, by the way, I meant to mention as we brought Dan in, now has a mobile app that is, uh, you know, you could always use the site on your mobile, but it's uh, it's pretty well optimized for mobile. Pretty indispensable site in general, but now you can have it on your phone. You can see the win probabilities as you go at the park. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to continue. We got a whole bunch more texts in the text line at 590-590. Might not get to all of them, uh, so I apologize for that. We are also going to tee up tonight's game. We have the lineups. We have the scouting report on Brian Bayo. We have some mechanical changes to look at from Jose Barrios. All that's next on Jays Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. The best Blue Jays show out there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy, your Toronto Blue Jays back in action, 7-10 tonight at the Boston Red Sox. Ben Wagner on the call for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Our pal Joe Siddle has Blue Jays Central for you. Going to take a longer look at some of the mechanical changes Jose Barrios made with his fastball last start. It was much more effective. Uh, Blair and Barker have Jays talk for you post game. We got a segment left, and we got lots in the text line still. Charles from Miramichi asks, uh, after tonight, the Jays will have 40 games left. They'd have to play 10 games over 500 to get to 91 wins, so 25 and 15. Will that be enough to secure the top wild card? It's hard to say. It only takes one hot streak from one of these teams to for the answer to be no. Right now, 90 wins 
is the projected that would get you the top wild card. But that is a projection. That's the average outcome. That's not uh, any level of certainty. So I would say, yeah, that's the bar you're probably aiming for, Charles. If you do worse and still get the spot, awesome. But these next 19 games or next 18 games, because one's in the books already, uh, are really important. You're not going to, it's basically the last of the easy part of your schedule for the year. So uh, get after it. Chuck from Oshawa with a long one. He came to the realization weeks ago that this is something you can't predict because none of the pieces are playing consistently. And if they make it, you have no idea what to expect uh, any given game. I mean, that's, uh, that's true, but that's baseball. Look at the New York Yankees. They were on historic pace and then hit a month and a half long cold stretch. The Boston Red Sox bookended one of the hottest stretches in baseball this year with two terrible half seasons, basically. Um, everyone's up and down. I actually, you know, at the offensive side, I, I tried to graph this out the other week. And the Jays, in terms of rolling 10-game average offense uh, using OPS on base plus slugging, no, not really any more up and down and variable than um, the average team. Now, it, it can feel that way a little bit because the highs are so high, and at times they look like the best offensive baseball. And statistically, they have been over the last 81 games. But yeah, that's a lot of uh, it's a lot of it happens in baseball. So, um, Chuck, I'm glad you have made peace with it. But get used to this year to year because the Astros and the Dodgers are the only consistent teams in baseball the last couple of years. Um, Garrett from Alliston says can confirm a lot of Canadians go down to Pittsburgh and Cleveland. Both are beautiful parks. Couldn't agree more. I think Pittsburgh will be a fun one to check out and uh, let us know if you're heading down there next week because uh, the Jays got the Jays have three there and can't recommend PNC Park enough. Uh, George from Toronto says, I think your show is excellent, but I recently heard you arguing that Babe Ruth would be a replacement player if he played today. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard a baseball player say. Uh, George. Or a baseball person say, George. Uh, either... You absolutely mistook me giving Ben Nicholson Smith a hard time, or you are mistaken um, and listened to someone else and thought it was me. The only time I commented on that was at the tail end of an interview with Ben Nicholson Smith, and I just jokingly said that to let him plug the podcast. Don in Toronto thinks you say Kikuchi should not be pitching at all. They don't really have that option. Uh, Jackie from Toronto asks if the Jays would consider claiming Garrett Richards uh, for some starting depth for the upcoming double headers. I believe Garrett Richards just landed somewhere. Um, so that one might not be, Oh no, he, he reached free agency. Um, I thought I saw that someone was expected to sign him. Keep an eye on it. Uh, he's not very good, but again, yeah, if he's willing to do the Ken Giles, sign a minor league uh, free agent deal and get a couple starts in or a start or two in a triple a and just see what's there. See if he can get his control and find some, uh, find some consistency there. Um, I wouldn't, I, I would have said no to claiming him. He's now cleared waivers uh, because you don't want to eat that money and uh, the buyout on his option for next year. Um, 
the Mets and the Angels are are sorry the the Mets are believed to be a possibility per Ken Rosenthal. So that's the tweet that I saw um, that I was thinking of. Uh, someone asks the difference between Raw and SmackDown. Uh, well, Raw is three hours and it's on Monday. SmackDown is two hours. It's on Friday. Uh, there's a more the difference matters more in the U.S. because they're on different TV networks. But here at Sportsnet in Canada, we have all your WWE needs. Um, there's no longer there used to be a more defined difference between those two. Raw was kind of, for lack of a better phrasing, Raw was like the sports entertainment show and SmackDown was more the wrestling show. They're a little bit more the same uh, this time around. Someone who didn't... Guys, you got to sign these. Uh, someone asked, don't MLB teams have insurance against injuries? I assume that was a question related to Hyunjin Ryu and his $20 million. Um, unlike basketball and hockey, baseball has kind of a do-whatever-you-want-with-it insurance policy um it's a little more go enter the market and insure it on your own and it's a bit of uh like you would have to get the contract details somehow to figure it out because it's not uniform it's not anything across the board so we don't know the jays could have a big chunk of reuse contract insured but that would have probably cost them a lot of money on top of his contract or maybe they only have a small part insured and they were just betting that hey, over $80 million, you're going to have to eat some injury time. Um, so I don't have a good answer for you for that because Major League Baseball does not have a consistent catch-all thing. Tom and Vaughn would like $12 million per season to not throw strikes. Sure. I'll give you, I don't have $12 million, but there you go. Uh, I think they'd go to Reese McGuire first, though. Sorry. Um, Colin Barry asks, uh, what happens if the Mariners, Jays, and Rays all finish with the same record? in tiebreaker situation. I uh, would we'll go by record between the three of them um, and your question about what the next level tiebreaker would be. Uh, I have to just double check. Um, so it would be uh, record against your division. So head-to-head -head record is the first one. Um, then the record within the division, if you're in the same division, so you could break it down, um, like that. And then you would, the, the tiebreaker that you'd be going to in this scenario, I think, because there's teams from multiple divisions is, um, last your last half of the season against the American league, which I realize is a weird one, but yeah. Also, I don't know that that's going to come up because I, I'd have to look in detail at the Mariners, Rays, Jays records, but that's a, it's always a fun one to kind of, to kind of root for uh chaos like that though. Um, Drew Bowmanville loves the music selection today with Alexa fire and Silverstein. Thank you, Drew. And you're welcome. Um, Paul in Toronto says, I was really interested in your discussion regarding leverage and the fact that Vladdy is below league average. Just wondering which Jays are good in that leverage area. Um, Vladdy's not below league average necessarily. He's just below what we would expect from Vladdy. He doesn't hit as well as he normally does uh, in those situations. If you're looking for the Jays that do hit well in those spots, Teoscar Hernandez, Lourdes Gurriel Jr., and Alejandro Kirk are the three at the top of the list with a decent um, sample size. Oh, and sorry to Charles for uh, mispronouncing Miramashi. Not a hard CH. 
Um, Sean in Toronto asks if I can explain the MLB playoff format. Sure can. So the three division winners make the playoffs. The three teams with the next best record, so the three wild cards, make it in. Uh, the two teams with the best division record, the two division winners, rather, with the best record, so the Yankees and the Astros in all likelihood, they get a bye through the first round. Then the three wild cards and the AL Central winner play in uh, best of three wild card series. So if you are the top wild card team or the AL Central winner, you'll host that three game set. Winners go on to face the Yankees and the Astros, and then it's best of seven uh, standard playoff format from there. Jay from North York says Tampa Bay are a much better team now with Margot and Ramirez uh, back, not to mention a bunch of their bullpen arms. Uh, they were able to maintain a wild card spot even with their injuries. Seattle's much improved from the deadline. Uh, the worst thing that can happen is the Jays finish second in the wild card, and you have to go to Tampa for three. Uh, yeah, Tampa is not a place that I, I mentioned a stat uh, last time the Jays played at uh, Tropicana that the gap between teams struggling on batting average and balls in play in a specific location, like the Jays at Tropicana are just way, way worse than any other team at any other park. It makes no sense. Uh, makes no sense at all. Tim from Allison says, Jackie Bradley is going to be so important down the stretch. His championship pedigree and experience is immeasurable late in the year. And guess who's starting in Toronto again today? Or starting in, in Boston, rather. Uh, Centerfield and Fenway again today is Jackie Bradley Jr. Um, no, George, that was not me discussing Babe Ruth with uh, J.D. Bunkus. Uh, that must have been someone else. Or it was a jokey conversation or something. But no. Babe Ruth would be a monster at any time. Uh, we just have to see him. I, I mean, the other thing with these things is like when you're transporting guys across generations, you'd have to assume he has access to all the same tools that guys today have uh, as well. So you'd take all that natural skill and then give it sports science and stat cast and all that other good stuff and see uh, where he ends up. So, Yeah. Uh, no, it was not me chirping Babe Ruth, uh, at least not in any serious way. Let's take a look at tonight's game. Again, 7-10 first pitch. Ben Wagner on the call for you. Brian Bale makes his fourth career Major League start against the Blue Jays. Um, whether he gets to go long or they hook him quick for Rich Hill, we'll see. It seemed like the Red Sox were a little worried to pitch Rich Hill in this series because of the lefty-righty situation. Rich Hill has not been effective this year. The Jays don't hit lefties super well, especially junk-balling ones, for whatever reason. So it be interesting to see how long a leash Bayo has and if and when Rich Hill comes in. Bayo, you might remember, was the number three prospect in Boston system heading into this year, a top 100 prospect overall, still just 23. And he was dominant in double-A and very good in triple-A this year. He has been destroyed at the major league level. His swinging strike rate and his strikeout rate cut in half from his minor league numbers. Now, that's just a five-game sample and just three starts. And the component metrics think he's been fine. His fielding independent pitching and his expected ERA, the stat cast metric, say he's been fine. But he has 847 ERA. There's some poor fortune there because he has a sky-high ground ball rate and has been hammered on batting average of balls in play. I would counter that with, he also hasn't allowed a home run. And if you're going to give a guy the benefit of the doubt for some batted ball stuff, 
you also kind of have to look at, well, he has been hit pretty hard and nothing's left the park. So uh, all those singles and doubles might stop, but the homers might come. The reason, part of the reason, at least he hasn't given up home runs, is that he has a pretty good sinker. 96, 97 miles an hour, some real good sink to it. He throws it about 40% of the time. Monster ground ball pitch. Having said that, it has been hit very well for average so far. Um, what does that tell us? Usually guys with a good sinker, a good splitter, need something good to play it off of. It might be a little too predictable on its own if you can sit on it. Um, he also has a pretty good changeup. It's gotten 37% swing and miss rate on it, uh, eight miles an hour of separation from the sinker. And where those two play off each other well is that they tunnel well vertically. He he lets them go from the same kind of height, uh, but his arm can drift on the changeup. So you can maybe pick up the changeup if you're looking for it. Um, and there's not a huge degree of velocity separation there. So keep an eye uh, on that and how well he's mixing those pitches uh, together. He also has a slider and a fastball. They've been rocked pretty hard. But again, we're talking small samples here. Uh, it was all he he'll throw all four of those pitches at, at a decent volume between like 18 and 38 percent. The Jays saw Bayo uh, not that long ago. July 24th, he went four innings, gave up five earned on nine hits, two walks, two strikeouts. Jays hit nine of 20 against them. In addition to those two walks, pretty good. Vlad, George Springer, Rymel Tapia all had two hits. Teoscar. Hernandez and Danny Jansen were the only guys to go over. They were both over two with a strikeout. Bayo has modest platoon splits in the minor leagues this year. That hasn't been present at the major league level because everyone's hit him. And it wasn't really present last year in the minor. So I don't think you have to worry too much about the righty lefty stuff. And if Rich Hill's going to follow him today as expected, then you're really not worried about it too much because uh, there's a lefty coming in shortly after. Here's how the Jays are going to line up against Bale. George Springer, back at the top of the order, designated hitter. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Lourdes Gurriel Jr., Alejandro Kirk catches again and hits cleanup. Teoscar Hernandez, Bo Bichette, Matt Chapman. That's the top seven. Get fairly used to it unless it's a Kirk off day. Whit Merrifield gets the nod at second base. So you have Biggio and Espinal joining Danny Jansen on the bench. And then Jackie Bradley Jr., Gets the nod, hitting ninth and playing center field. Uh, good game yesterday. Knows that Fenway outfield really well. So that leaves Rymel Tapia on the bench, too. Only the one lefty in there. But again, we're not too worried about that with Bayo and, and if Hill's following. That's the Jays team that'll line up behind Jose Barrios. Good step forward last game. It's a little hard to know when it's a full-on... Jose Brios is looking better and turning around or when it's, it's just a blip because Brios has been pretty up and down. We've told this tale a couple times. He had a worse ERA than Kikuchi there. 539 ERA, but the Jays are nine and five or he's nine and five. The Jays are 17 and seven. When he starts, a lot of that is run support or, or good fortune, good timing. But he's also had, of his 24 starts, 14 of them have been league average or better by baseball references game score. That's You need more than 14 out of 24 from a guy you're paying 
the money you're paying Jose Brios for sure, but it's not that unusual for him to have a good start like he did last time. He's still elite with the chase rate, elite with the walk rate, um, still slightly above average velocity, and, and because he gets good extension, the effective velocity is pretty good. He just gets hit hard sometimes. Last time out, and again, you can look on Blue Jay Central for this later. Joe Siddle will break it down with a little bit more video, but we saw a couple mechanical tweaks for Jose Brios on the fastball. And it was much more effective. He set up higher. He hid the ball in his glove longer and his shoulders rotated back a little further before delivery. Maybe it's not the best that he's making multiple tweaks. And we saw him move his spot on the mound earlier this year and, and tweak some other things, tweak where the catcher set up, whatever you got to do though. If you got to keep tweaking to find some success, go for it because that fastball can't get rocked every time out or have you go away from it entirely. Maybe the most encouraging thing about his last start was that his curveball didn't have a particularly great game and he was still really good. And that's been pretty rare this year because the curveball has been his number one pitch uh, by volume, throws about 32% of the time, and by results. 169 batting average against, a 30.6% whiff rate. Um, by weighted on base average, it has been the 65th best pitch in baseball uh, with a certain pitch cutoff. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of pitchers out there. And they have a lot of good pitches. And a top 65 pitch is pretty good. It's a very good curveball. Again, 169 batting average against and almost a 31% swing and miss rate. Uh, he'll also throw the sinker. Guys can make contact with it, but it's a helpful setup pitch, a helpful uh, deception pitch. And then the changeup is uh, a decent pitch as well, and it's got a better shot at swing and miss. Uh, we'll see if the changeup plays better over a longer sample with the fastball coming from a higher point. Because whatever change you make to the fastball, you want to make sure you're doing with the sinker and the changeup as well. Otherwise, you might be giving that away and losing a little bit on the changeup. Brios faced the Red Sox twice earlier this year. He was pretty good. 13 innings, three earned runs, 13 hits, two walks, 10 strikeouts. Jays won both of them. He has faced the active Red Sox for 122 plate appearances with a 482 expected ERA. That's not great. Uh, before this year, he'd had some trouble with some of these guys. Bogarts, Devers, um, Kike Hernandez, all bad in a decent sample against Brios. Whereas J.D. Martinez, good in a moderate sample. Alex Verdugo, very good in a small sample. Uh, and the one thing we were looking out for today was splits because the Red Sox can go pretty lefty heavy if they want to. And Jose Barrios has struggled with lefties this year, a 380 weighted on base average against, against lefties compared to a 323 mark against righties. The Red Sox could have gone with as many as five left-handed bats in this one. And guess what they did? They went with five left-handed bats in this one. They'll line up as follows. Rob Ref Snyder at the top, Alex Verdugo, J.D. Martinez, Rafael Devers, Kike Hernandez, Franchi Cordero, Bobby Dahlbeck, Reese McGuire, old friend. Uh, shocked that he's able to pitch, uh, able to catch today after pitching last night. Uh, Jaron Duran rants it out in center field. The big news there in how they're lining up is that Bobby Dahlbeck's playing shortstop. He's played four innings there in his major league career and two innings there in his minor league career. That's how thinned out the Sox are here. It's uh, not a great scene with the Red Sox. And of course, Dahlbeck being at shortstop means 
Xander Bogarts is not playing. He left yesterday's game. Tommy Pham also left yesterday's game and is not playing. Uh, Kevin Ploiecki, the other name on the bench. And wait, is who's the other guy? Oh, Christian Arroyo, the other name that the, the Sox can bring off the bench if they need. Uh, the top four guys in Boston's bullpen weren't used yesterday, and they had an off day Monday, so they're probably feeling pretty good about things. Austin Davis giving them 59 pitches yesterday uh, probably saved a lot. Uh, Josh Winkowski, who started yesterday, is down to the minors, which allowed them to uh, activate Bayo without losing a bullpen arm there. So not a bad spot for their bullpen to be in um, when one guy can eat that much. And the Jays, not bad either. David Phelps did uh, monster work yesterday. 33 pitches, six outs. Him, Kikuchi, and Trevor Richards, three pitches, the only relievers used yesterday. And the Jays also coming off of an off day Monday. So a very well-rested bullpen. Jordan Romano hasn't pitched since Friday. Uh, Jimmy Garcia and Anthony Bass haven't pitched since Saturday. Tim Mays is fresh off the IL. Uh, Adam Simbers now had a rare back-to-back days off for him. So uh, you're feeling pretty good. We don't have a lot of updates, uh, firm updates on the relievers who are on their way back. But we mentioned it earlier when someone asked about uh, optioning Yusei Kikuchi down to bring another bullpen arm up. Not only do you have Zach Pop, Trent Thornton, and Matt Gage down there. Gage and Pop, who have been pretty good at the major league level. Thornton, who can give you a little bit of length. Um, You also have Thomas Hatch pitching better of late. And Casey Lawrence, who's been very good at AAA all year, um, even if he hasn't really impressed at at the major league level. You have all of those guys who you could call on if need be. You also have Nate Pearson doing another bullpen session today as he tries to work his way back from a lat issue. Uh, you have Julian Merriweather, who hopefully we'll get an update on at some point after he left Sunday's game, uh, who has had six rehab appearances and has looked very good. You also have Taylor Sacedo, who was in Toronto to be reevaluated and is uh, possibly close to his way back as well. So that's a lot of bullpen arms. It's not, I hesitate to use the Marlowe. It's one of them good problems because, uh, None of those names are sure things. That's a lot of guys who, if they're the last or second last guy in your bullpen, you're okay with churning them through, but no one who's going to pitch in high leverage. But it's still good to have those options. Six weeks left in the season or so is an eternity for bullpens. And there's a real possibility that the Jays are going to have to do some back-end churn uh, because the schedule does get so compressed a couple of times with those two double headers and not a ton of off days the rest of the way. Mention it again. The Jays are in the sp- <laughs> uh Christian from Guelph asks why I hate Babe Ruth. Um, he couldn't hit a ball out of the Guelph Royal Stadium. I'll tell you that much. I'm telling you that much. Um, there are a couple more uh, questions in the text. I'm sorry we're not going to get to all of them. Uh, And yes, to that person who said, if you put Thornton in, you may as well give up. Yes. Uh, Not my favorite of um, leverage spot guys, but he's a depth piece that they like more than, uh, you know, the numbers like. Uh, So Jays in action again tonight, Boston Red Sox, Jose Barrios against Brian Bayo. The top seven in the lineup are where you'd want them. Ben Wagner on the call for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Starting at 710 first pitch. Blair and Barker have you for ha, Jay's talk for you post game. Uh, thanks to JR and Andrew 
behind the glass. Thanks to Caitlin and Dan for coming on. And thanks for all the great mailbag questions. Jay's Talk Plus returns tomorrow at 3 p.m. on Sportsnet 590 The Fan.